who are the presidents, prime ministers, social entrepreneurs, artists, media moguls? What kind of character, uh, what kind of skill set do all these people need to share in common to actually be able to coordinate in a fashion that doesn't lead to a continued major societal downward spiral that we're facing right now? A metaphor that I like to to use is like people are kind of shuffling to get the best seat on the Titanic as it's sinking. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I'm really glad I had the chance to talk with Gary Sheng. Gary's a political entrepreneur who's currently the COO of Civics Unplugged. He was previously a programming lead at Google. Gary was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 2020 list under social impact. Gary has a great story to tell about how he remade himself as an activist working to improve the future of our democracy. We talked about that path and the rather significant transformation he's undergone, as well as what Civics Unplugged is and where it's going. They are a social enterprise devoted to empowering the leaders of Gen Z to rebuild and strengthen American democracy. You should listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Gary Shang and Civics Unplugged. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So Gary, uh, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, no problem. So I'm currently one of the co-founders and I'm currently the COO of Civics Unplugged, uh, which is a social enterprise committed to empowering Gen Z to build uh, the future of American democracy. Before that, I was uh, at Google as a software engineering lead uh, on Google Cloud based in New York City. While I was doing that, I was also running a pretty popular music blog and events company called Dancing Pineapple. I ultimately left Google because I felt like there was nothing better that I could be doing with my time. Uh, there was no higher aim uh, that I could be pursuing than trying to build a better future for America and global civilization. <laughs> well, it certainly is a high aspiration and it's also one that we need a lot of people working on, unfortunately, these days. Yeah, I'd say so. Can you tell me a little bit about how you grew up, where, and what sort of family? I think it's helpful to go all the way back to my family origins in China. I was born in America, but as you and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, uh, there was the Cultural Revolution in the 60s, the Great Leap Forward around that time as well uh, in China. It still haunts me to this day, the story of uh, communist stormtroopers barging into my grandfather's villa and ripping a, uh, him apart from his wife, uh, his children, including my dad, and being sent to a work camp for six years. So my dad didn't have a father from the age four to 10. I think he you know, basically has worked his ass off to, to get into the uh, to be basically number one at math in his age range, and then en ended up getting into the best college in China, which is uh, Peking University or Beijing University. Uh, ended up doing grad school in LSU. Also brought, brought over my mom, had my older brother, four years older, uh, in 1989, March. While he was at, at LSU, he said that he realized that almost everything that he learned in China was uh, a lie. Uh, three months after my brother was born was June of 1989, and that was the, you know, uh, that was right ar around when my dad was helping organize pro-democracy demonstrations in LSU. 
in solidarity with his brothers and sisters in China. And what happened that June? The Tiananmen Square massacre, where at least tens of thousands of, of kids were uh, young people were were murdered right by by the government that was supposedly uh, for the people. I just have to imagine what my father uh, and, and my mother were thinking at that time when uh, just a few months later, uh, George H.W. Bush granted my both of my parents political refugee status um, and gave them green cards. A big reason why immigrants find America meaningful in probably different ways, but really important ways, um, is that th- they often don't take what America is how it's different from other countries for granted. Um, so I don't take my life for granted because four years later, right? Well, if my parents didn't get political refugee status, I wouldn't have been able to be born, right? Because they would have gone back to China uh, and there was a one-child policy. So I think about that a lot. Um, so I grew up in, in suburban Illinois, um, really nice you know, childhood, upper middle class. Both parents were um, software engineers or or my dad was actually when he wasn't a software engineer he was teaching a computer science at uh, one of the universities in Illinois had a great upbringing went to the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy which was started by a Nobel Prize uh, winning physicist uh, it was actually a, a school that was started basically as a a way to stay competitive with the with, with Russia during the Cold War I didn't actually make all these connections before, you know, until a few years ago, quite, quite honestly, I I, I didn't, I didn't recognize how meaningful my family history was, my upbringing was um, until I realized that I was taking America for granted. There's a lot to be said about, I guess, the past 27 years of my existence, um, but I guess I'll pause there. It uh, resonates with me that immigrant history, which I think most of us share in this country. I come from Jewish immigrants from the turn of the century, and my wife is a Chinese-American and tells the stories of her family, which, you know, her dad was on the last boat out of China to Taiwan when the revolution came. Both parents had their sort of families completely changed by that, that political change over there. You know, they came here and they worked hard, uh, both my side and her side. You know, and I think that somehow that comes to me too, a real caring for the democratic system flawed as it is that we have. So that's a lot of why I enjoy and care about talking to people like you who've, who've found a purpose in fighting for it. So I know that you came out of that uh, rather STEM training and went to Duke. Tell me a little about your time there. So I went to Duke uh, because I figured it was a, a good school to just figure out what I wanted to do uh, in the future. And I think I was more than anything lucky that they started to invest a lot into uh, tech programs, entrepreneurship programs. Um, so I was kind of clueless my freshman year and I just saw I guess a, a marketing message from one of the departments that there's going to be a Duke and Silicon Valley internship program. So, and it was like a one minute video application and I had no expectations that I would get it. I had no, I had not written a line of code at that time, but I just figured I'd throw my hat in the ring. Super surprised. I, I got accepted. I was one of like 10 kids and um, I interned at this startup called Pocket a pretty pretty popular service that allows you to save things for later to read um it, it recently got acquired by mozilla it was there where i just was blown away by the power of code to affect people's lives um it was like literally a, a team of six that had a like millions of regular users um so it kind of blew my mind the cto who was kind of like my my intern host really encouraged me to to at least try out. He wasn't like pushing me too hard. He was like, just at least try out computer science. Ultimately, I liked it. And I guess I was sort of just laser focused on on pursuing, just developing my skills, catching up to, to my peers, which I thought were way ahead of me. I got really, I think I just got lucky one after another. I um, got internship after internship and ended up with an internship at Google, ended up with a, a full-time job at Google. Which is something that 
a whole lot of people who studied computer science aspire to, I assume. Uh, it's kind of one of the biggest names in the business, if not the biggest. What was that experience working at Google like for you? You'd, you'd intern there, so you had a sense of it. It was, it was like a, a playground. When you're given that sort of safety structure where you're almost like no matter what you do, uh, unless you do something like really egregious, you have your job or at least you can transfer over to a different team. It's relieving. Um, and it's also nice to have a bunch of free food. It's nice to you know have a bunch of different perks, not worry about your health care, not worry about literally what you eat for any meal of the day. It, it took me some time to realize that that safety net also was stripping away, I guess, the hunger that even got me there in the first place. And that's not something that that's really obvious to to people when they're kind of single-mindedly, you know, trying to get to a particular destination. They don't realize that like it can actually be kind of harmful in the really long term to be at the place that they kind of, I guess, they thought was like heaven, and just get really complacent. Um, so it took me a long time to just kind of realize what I think all humans need. They all they need that like I can speak from my personal experience that like this past two years, not at Google or like year and a half, really, I felt like we, we, we could just be toast at like any, any week or any day, really. But that, that challenge, uh, th- that the feeling that we could fail is, is also extremely exhilarating. And, and the fact that I had to commit my whole body and brain and spirit to civics unplugged just to keep it afloat. And even, even when like, Externally, we get like certain uh, accolades or uh, you know shoutouts from some famous person or famous publication. You know, we know internally that like, well, the reason why we got here in the first place was because we we gave it our all. And I think about like how I honestly felt, <laughs> I felt I felt kind of soft a couple of years into Google. Let me ask you a little bit about that. Then, I mean, just in terms of the work that you were doing, from what I see, you were working on the cloud experience for the user. Is that right? Yep. yep. And so what does that mean you're doing during a day? So at a company like Google, there's so many different people that are working on the same project or product or feature even. You're really siloed into a particular focus area, right? And and often, even for a software engineering lead in, in my sort of focus area, which is like the user experience for a particular part of the Google Cloud, you're not really getting your hands in the user research bucket. You're like a recipient of user research. You're not really talking to that many users directly. Um, You're not really designing what you end up implementing that often, right? You have some input into it, but it's minimal. It's almost like systematically, you are not able to see the full picture and uh, have a say in, even if you are good at talking to customers, even if you are do have good design chops, those skills are, are almost outsourced right to other parts of the team. It's almost the complete inversion of my own tech path, which is that after a computer science degree, I found my way working at smaller and smaller companies until I started one that was just me for a while, where I could both do the product design and the sales and talking to customers and kind of getting it all as right as I could with between me and my customers. And I felt like there was a lot of meaning in doing that. I was kind of scared of the big company and being a cog in a wheel like that, even though I'm sure you learned a lot. You said that at the same time, you're doing this dancing pineapple <laughs> enterprise. Tell me a little about that because that's a very different lens on the world. <laughs> yeah. This thought came to mind at least a few times that my work at Google with my work at Dancing Pineapple allowed me to be more or less a full person. <laughs> <laughs> In a bureaucracy, like everyone is like basically obligated to reply to your emails everyone's operating under very clear shared guidelines, rules, uh, shared objectives. 
and you know this, when you're running your own thing and you're like building it from scratch, uh, you're cold emailing a lot. You're getting a lot of rejection or, or people are ignoring you. You're not able to like just count on the, the Google brand, right? You're building a brand from scratch. You're making yourself really vulnerable. If you're throwing a party and there's this fear that no one will come or you're putting together like a, a roster of artists, right? And um, any number of things go, goes wrong. I got invited to do a New Year's Eve event a few years ago. And uh, the person that brought me on was nowhere to be found for a month and a half. And the venue ended up like putting responsibility on me, which ultimately was one of the best experiences of my life because I learned a lot about, I don't know, human nature, um, how to figure things out in a very short amount of time. The artists that weren't even paid, like they, they trusted me. They knew that I would figure out over time. So they, they played and they actually helped set up the, the speakers that didn't even exist. So we had to literally go to Guitar Center to pick up the last pair of speakers that they had like the, the day before. Maybe it was the day of. I don't even know. There was nothing even close to that at Google in terms of like what it was doing to my heart. My heart rate in, in, in all the in, in a very productive way, like how I was stretching my brain and marketing, sales, um, design, team management, motivation, inspiring people. Um, there was a little bit of that at Google, but I felt like if on a given week I was doing, you know, a lot of Google stuff, but also a lot of dancing pineapple stuff, I felt like my gifts were being used. If that makes sense, it does make sense. One thing that it strikes me is that this is the same time period that we have a crazy campaign for president and elect, you know, a grifter and a demagogue. What was your lens on the politics that was happening externally like that? I was in denial, right, for most of 2016. And then I was genuinely shocked by the result in, in November. I don't know if there was any, at that point, there was any greater wake-up call than that result that I had in my entire life. I think my life was just super simple, to be honest, uh, before. It was just get good grades, get good SAT scores, uh, get leadership positions so you look good on college apps, and then in college, do some extracurriculars in addition to getting good grades, and then have good internships. So you can get a good job. It's funny to me looking back how much stress people have about that very simple path. Uh, well, I guess because people measure themselves based on like the few, the few people like that get the Google internship feel good, right? And I think that's just really bad, bad mentality. But but in many ways it was really simple. What Trump's election showed me was just how little I, I knew about how the world worked. I was just kind of blindly following a path. I was grateful that, that that path led me to a place where I was getting paid a good amount of money, right? But I, I felt kind of useless. I felt uh, ignorant. I felt unjustified in feeling any sort of way about America because I had not really contributed to America. <laughs> Did you connect that, the rise of Trump, to your parents' experience in China? Hmm. <clears throat> Uh, like with Mao at all? Yeah, you know, like with, well, just with, look, there are huge political forces that can change the country that I'm in and then affect me personally. Yes. I hope that America, well, I'm sh maybe for some people that is the case, but that there is like a lot of parallels between the 60s in China and America today. But yes, I, I, I started to, to wake up to that fact. I think I can speak for most millennials that even though none of us had read Francis Fukuyama, I think we believed that we were living in the end of history and that it was just all a matter of like, now, now we're deciding who's more elite than each other, than the other people, right? And gets more money. And it's not like we talked about this philosophy, but that was the embedded philosophy. And that's what, what's occupied everyone's minds. That like, who is more elite than other people, right? At Duke, like, of course, we weren't, we weren't going to talk about that because I think we've been embarrassed that that was our operating philosophy. But there was so much like, like frenemy tension about who gets an internship or, or gets a good grade or better grade on this uh, test. I'm assuming that there was also at Duke a sense of becoming an educated person, not just 
getting a good brand and and getting into the workforce at a elite place. Did you find that or no? Nathaniel, oh, like I reflecting back, I, I, I think that was the smallest minority. And I was friends with all sorts of friend groups, uh, which is really sad. I do find that really troubling. But I think some of it is kind of what you come to it with and what you're seeking when you're there. And I think people come to college at different points in their intellectual development. No doubt. And you know, it's very possible that there was, you know, groups of kids that were, you know, asking really hard questions and foresaw everything and you know, more connected to injustice and politics and the social inequities that are out there, perhaps. Yeah. You know, I went to a, a, a you know, the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy. It, it draws from all sorts of parts of Illinois um, and intentionally seeks socioeconomic and all, and all sorts of diversity. And um, I just think it's it's characteristic of I don't I wouldn't necessarily say all millennials, but like people in my age range, let's say, I don't know, let's say like 25 to, to 30 who are 25 to 30 right now. I think I can pretty confidently say that we grew up feeling more or less that it was nice to have to, to think about politics or, or civics and that you could kind of more or less just worry about yourself and your family. Yeah. Tell me about the decision to leave Google to start Civics Unplugged, sort of the founding story there, you know, what you were going through and how that began. After Trump got elected, I don't regret this decision, but I I definitely jumped into action without thinking about what type of action is most valuable right away. And so I, I started to volunteer for this, I won't say his name, but um, this pretty famous uh, internet activist type person. Why not say his name? I don't think it's helpful for a lot of the lessons that I would most like to disclose, I guess. Often the most polarizing people are often the most vindictive uh, and, and whatnot. Because of my dancing pineapple background, you know, he saw some opportunity for me to do some social media stuff for him. And uh, between early 2017 and to early 2018, uh, I got a billion impressions uh, with spending zero dollars on uh, social media. I barely need to tell you what type of content does well without spending much money, right? It's it's the stuff that really kind of hijacks uh, your limbic system. Stuff that gets you riled up. Yes. Was this an activist on the left? Yes. You know, on the note of kind of political development, I, I find this to be pretty common. When you realize that the country that you grew up in was not everything that you thought it was, you take a certain approach that you, that you eventually find out once you develop a little bit more empathy, you realize that you are actually adding fuel to the fire. For every action, there, there was almost certainly an opposite reaction um, that people like Trump loves. People, people like Trump love this sort of street fight mentality that, that Twitter makes it really easy to do, uh, to, to engage in. Ultimately, in, in early 2018, I realized that it was this sort of internet activism that people are still uh, obviously very engaged in. And, and, and the people that, that I know that continue to do that, their mental health is, is really, really bad. And that was the case for me in 2018. I was uh, reactive. I was paranoid. I, I was definitely not transmitting good vibes to the people that I interacted with much, including my ex. And I just started to open my mind more to different perspectives. Um, so, so for many reasons, I just, I just cut out that sort of activity cold turkey. And I went on this, you know, many thousands of hours sort of learning journey, networking journey, just meeting social entrepreneurs, meeting democracy reformers. Listening to tons of podcasts, YouTube videos, uh, reading lots of books, um, and I was lucky in early 2019 to have uh, met people that were also on sort of similar 
I guess, political, spiritual, civic, philosophical uh, journeys that I was. Maybe it's so obvious now that we would be in agreement about this, but we were in deep agreement that uh, the two major parties were failing the people that were meant to serve. A lot of the people in those parties were advancing its collapse, right? Um, another thing that we recognized was uh, Generation Z, despite their disproportionate desire to engage civically and build a better world, uh, were not getting equipped with what they need to do so. And a lot needed to be done to equip them, right? Like there needs to be a whole civic learning ecosystem. Um, it's not just a matter of saying, watch this video or, you know, watch this lecture. It's, um, it's a whole like transformational experience, a long, long-term transformational experience that needs to be provided that we're still figuring out. But uh, after four months of, of kind of discussing ideas and, um, you know, those ideas have long changed, but, you know, at some point, my soon-to-be co-founders gave me the courage to say that we cannot just see the enormity of the challenges today and also notice that no one else is, is addressing them in the way that we know it, they can be addressed. And, and if, we, if we don't do anything about that, how are we going to feel about ourselves? How, how are we going to live with ourselves? That's what continues to drive me every day, uh, the recognition that uh, we do see something that a lot of other people, they may have the time and, and resources, uh, don't see. And, and we take that responsibility really seriously. Tell me about these co-founders. Where did you meet them and who are they? I met the CEO, Josh Thompson, in January of 2019 through an introduction from the person who would become our most evangelistic donor, Jeffrey Silverman. Jeffrey had met Josh and I in like the same one week span, which was crazy. Uh, it's funny how these things align. So Josh is many things. Josh uh, ran against de Blasio in 2017. It was a long shot campaign, but uh, it was definitely an inspiring one and it taught him a lot. He's really passionate about uh, education reform. He was a civil servant in, in New York, New Jersey, and Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, he's done venture capital. He has all sorts of experiences that I had I had not. And I mean, it's just amazing how much we align on in terms of values-wise on just about everything. Um, but the way that he sees the world and what he's experienced are just so complimentary. He ended up bringing in into the fold one of his longtime friends who had taught and been a vice principal um, at various high schools uh, for yeah, like 10 years, who had a particular specialty with civic education and, and history and uh, had, had a really good perspective about what was lacking in how we were trying to develop civically minded young people. I had some crazy perspectives that <laughs> I felt like we should try out, um, that it was really good to, to have the backing of people that were really respected in the civic and education and political space. We three mutually gave each other the courage to, to leave uh, respectively our, a venture job, uh, a job as a vice principal, and for me, as a software engineer at Google, and then some others that that I would easily call my co-founders. Well, one one of them is this kid named Thanasi, who he's just turned eighteen. Actually, uh, he's been working with us since he was sixteen, uh, and he's just kind of like this this youth media guru um, who like won all sorts of model UN competitions and uh, had this pretty big Gen Z media publication uh, and recognized that, you know, all, all these like pretty cool things that he was involved in before paled in comparison to the impact that Civics Unplugged can make. Um, so it's been a really awesome uh, couple of years working with them really closely. How did you get it off the ground? So, the, the first thing that we launched was in January of this year, which was the Civics Unplugged Fellowship, which started with 200 kids from almost 40 states. How we pulled that together in, in, our, in just our first year, um, so much of that was leveraging 
Josh and Nick's uh, networks. Josh was connected in just about any, like every space that, that, that you can imagine. Politics, tech, media, youth development, right? And, and so we, we were able to have like really amazing partners such as Blue Star Families that recognized our long-term vision. So Blue Star Families is the largest military families uh, organization in the country. They have dozens of chapters. Uh, their membership has grown actually tremendously just this year alone. I think they have, I think they have millions of uh, military families in their network. Their basically endorsement of us in our application season in the fall of 2019 did a lot for us. And there was a bunch of other partners that, that, that contributed as well to getting the word out about our unproven uh, leadership model. And this whole thing really, Nathaniel, has been uh, an experiment that like, again, at, like, at, at any time, I just feel like our momentum could have died at any, any, any moment. And um, not sure how easily I can remember you know, individual moments, but we've been working every day for the last two years. That's really what it's taken so far. That is entrepreneurship. And that is creating something where, where nothing existed before out of ideas that you have, but that have to change as they meet the real world and as they get negotiated with the team. I assume that it's both sort of, where do you find funding? It sounded like you had a person that was helpful, but I don't know what else. You tell me about that. And also, you know, is there an audience for what you're selling? Even though it's a mission and a, a fellowship, it's still who wants this and what are they going to do with it? So there's like yeah two points I want to touch on, funding and demand slash audience. Yeah, so regarding funding, I mean, it's amazing how much I've learned through Josh in particular about the importance of developing trusting relationships. I think about this when I'm like looking at different like tech platforms that may, may be able to solve a potential problem that I'm facing. There's always like 10, 10 different platforms that are like, some have some number of users. I'm just like, I, I have no idea which one I would pick. And I, and I ultimately love it when I have a friend that, that recommends uh, something to me. Anyways, back to, back to fundraising. A lot of people, quite frankly, gave us money because they trusted Josh and, and they trusted that the people that Josh would bring into a team that he was building would be able to pull something off. Right. And I guess my own mental model for like a, a startup uh, was very much more of the like, oh, like if you have a great idea, that's what you need to protect and you need to go into stealth mode. And when the idea meets the real world, it's going to change. <laughs> and so what you're investing in, what you're, what you're donating to are people that are, are kind of intertwined in upward trajectory. Right? So all of us have grown so much. We're learning from each other. We're, we're giving each other feedback. Where uh, we're making each other's ideas better, none of that would have happened if if Josh, in previous lives of his previous like things that he's been involved in and he continues to be involved in, um, didn't win him a ton of trust with people. They were like, even if this doesn't take off, I want Josh to know that I believe in in Josh. Right. So um, so that that was really really important for me to see because. Um, I think, you know, anytime I see a, a, a young person that like is like looking for money and almost like has this feeling of like entitlement that they deserve money, uh, I realize, oh my God, there are people that have, have spent sometimes decades developing relationships with, with donors. It's more than well earned. That's one, one part of it. Over time, we have gotten donations that none of us on the team knew, right? So we recently actually got a donation from Craig Newmark, um, the uh, founder of Craigslist. And that was really cool because he's very methodical about who, who he invests in. And I guess he had heard about us through uh, a number of different ways. And, and that reinforces the importance of trust. But our results are, are starting to speak for themselves more. Uh, and on the note of audience, I mean, th this was really hard, right? Because, I mean, similar to me, a lot of people really take for granted democracy. And, and if you ask them what they think democracy is, well, if you ask 10 different people, they may give you 10 different answers. 
if you ask them to think about why does democracy matter to the future of our civilization, that itself requires education. How do you both find enough people before it becomes obvious to people, either, either through your education or societal education somehow, because, you know, the culture just starts to care about democracy more or young people more. How do you stay afloat, right, by, by getting enough donations so you can keep going while you are bringing enough people that are newly educated into the fold? And this is also not just for like adults that we're trying to get uh, donations from. We know that there are really amazing kids that may just think that the only thing to worry about, for example, is marching in a climate march. I think there's value to that, but there's a lot of important parts to the building the future equation that are woefully neglected and that ironically require education. So you need to be educated to realize that a lot of the things that we want to equip you with or young people with is necessary. Tell me about this fellowship. So from my understanding, you're bringing in high school kids and there's a bit of a program for them to go through. Explain. One part of it is uh, curriculum. This curriculum is participatory because we're, we're not just trying to have kids memorize facts. It has to be really practical and, and lived. Otherwise, they're not going to find it me- meaningful and they're not going to remember it. There's four major buckets to our curriculum. One is personal development because you yourself are a system that is really complex and dynamic, ever-changing, and learning about how to get, get your own individual system in order informs you on how to shift wider systems, right? Even even a system such as your, your family system. Um, it's not obvious on how to make your family environment just even a little better. That's one component, right? And, and in that component is thinking about what is your mission? What is your aim? What are pitfalls in your life? What are your superpowers? What are your values? What are your passions? What are your anchors? One of my anchors is working out in the morning uh, or my, my instant pot, right? Like, it's, it's amazing how, how, much, how helpful it is to map out these things. So personal development is one thing. And then there's systems thinking, which, again, I've already mentioned systems thinking. Uh, it, it's so uh, so important to see how different things relate to each other and, and influence each other, uh, to see feedback loops in the world. It's almost like the default to make a, a change, and it creates more problems than it, than it solves. <laughs> and this is, this is something that, I, that, that we really try to emphasize, that you know, humility when it comes to shifting systems. There's a sophistication to them, even ones that you do not think are working well, uh, that you do not want to uh, underestimate. And then there's democratic theory, which is really a form of applied systems thinking. And we, we look at how democracy in America works compared to Taiwan, right? Which is working uh, astonishingly well. And, you know, a friend of Civics Unplugged is actually the, the digital minister of Taiwan, um, who's amazing and is, is coming back to speak with us uh, in February, which we're really excited about. We also look at like Estonia and Switzerland, etc. Uh, and then finally, community building. And, and this is this is a really participatory aspect of it. The entire time they are part of a entirely virtual community, which will eventually shift to what we like to call digital first, where there will be more in-person meetings you know, as it becomes safer. But the entire time they're learning how to Uh, engage and work with and relate to people all across the globe. So we have kids that went out of their way to apply from Mumbai, Puerto Rico, France, uh, Hong Kong. The Hong Kong girls was especially inspiring uh, to me because she was saying how like civic education is banned in Hong Kong. Because it actually can be empowering. It can actually be empowering. That's the problem, right, for a government. Um, so, I mean, th- there's a lot to be said here, um, but ultimately by by the end of the program, they leave with a lot more clarity on what is it that they're aiming towards and how they might start to get closer to that. So I noticed that you have applications open and that it starts in January, You're still taking people. Who are you looking for? It's totally fine if you have good grades, and, et cetera, but we don't ask for a GPA. We don't ask for your SAT score or whatever. 
Uh, what we care about is uh, a deep hunger to grow, to learn, to be part of something bigger than yourself, and to commit to a, a journey that, quite frankly, weeds a lot of a lot of kids out. This wasn't obvious to us what we should do about that, but uh, we found that that the kids that stick with us after the four or five month journey, they want to basically do this full time, which is those are the people that, you know, given our limited time, that's, that's where we know we need to invest our, our time and resources. One thing that you sent me when I reached out to you on LinkedIn was information about you on Notion. <laughs> oh, the, the, my leadership blueprint. Your leadership blueprint. You know, I looked through it and Along the way, as an entrepreneur, I started being in groups with other entrepreneurs and having access to coaches and a lot of the language of personal development and things like that is similar to what you're working on that I've been exposed to. But I certainly was not at all exposed to in a systematic way before I'd been a entrepreneur for a while. At what point did you fill out this and under what circumstances? Yeah, so we, we created this this framework about a year and a half ago. Um, so I started to play with it before I, I left Google um, in April. And we have been iterating on it based on feedback from the kids, from myself and others that use it and the kids. And, and by the end of the, the Civics Unplugged Fellowship, they fill out an entire uh, leadership blueprint. The impetus behind creating this and filling this out is that I think we kind of grossly overestimate how much we we know who we are and how we operate and what is good for us and what, what helps us achieve a healthy equilibrium in our lives. A big reason for, for why we push uh, for kids to fill out the leadership blueprint, but also just care about their personal development and self-knowledge is you can have the grandest ambitions to make a difference in the world. But if you don't figure out how to sustainably achieve flourishing at the individual level or support the flourishing of even just a few people around you on a consistent basis, it's going to be very hard for you to think on a much wider systems level. What I don't believe is that that kids just don't want to talk about. In fact, kids really enjoy talking about, once they even know that it's something to talk about, they love talking about it, right? And that, so, so that's one thing. What I've learned from the youth civic sort of ecosystem of like organizations that like have like programs is that there's this heavy emphasis that like, you're like not on like the right track if you don't already have like a, a 501c3 nonprofit by the time you're 18 or uh, you haven't like organized like a march. When you celebrate the almost like when you sanctify the the process of, of slowly becoming more uh, of who you can be, kids are so relieved and, and, and they focus their energy on, on things that they should be. Right. And instead of creating an organization that ultimately fails because their their mind is not even right. I mean, it strikes me as almost reduplicating the mindset that, that you found at Duke and maybe had at Duke of kind of competitiveness, putting it into the social venture or social impact area without really getting it authentically right. The kids who were feeling like, oh, I, I can't even enter this field because there's people so far ahead of me already. I can't beat them. I myself on this podcast have talked to a kid who you know, was canvassing at nine and had spoken for Elizabeth Warren at the state convention when he was in his mid-teenage years or a, a girl out of Minnesota who you know, ran three organizations by 19 or something. You look at people like that sometimes, just as you might look at somebody in the technical field and be like, ah, that can't be my area. That's the easiest thing to see. Like you start to to think that that is identity, right? These like external markers of success, that's identity, that's value, that's like human worth. You know, one of the many things that the Leadership Blueprint is trying to 
achieve and, and more broadly what the civics unplugged culture is trying to achieve and we actually call this process of getting away from a lot of pathological mindsets unplugging which is actually it's extremely convenient that 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 we have the name civics unplugged well can you explain that name we really as a, as a culture inside civics unplugged we really try to unplug from virtue signaling we really try to uh, unplug from performative uh, grievance-based identities we really try to unplug from short-term mindset, scarcity mindset, retribution uh, mindset, the idea of seeking confirmation of your beliefs, the idea of students competing to outrank fellow students uh, at almost any cost, right? And I actually talk about with some of the kids uh, about how high school is actually systematically creating sociopaths. It truly is like a a double bind where it's like a rock in a hard place where if you don't allow yourself to be a little bit ruthless in the high school setting, well, you disappoint your whole family, like especially like immigrant families. They really, really pressure their kids to get into like Ivy League school. A lot of these same kids are, are tormented by what they have to do and they feel embarrassed themselves. I've had kids admit to me that they started a nonprofit because their parents forced them to start a nonprofit. Oh my God. Yeah. Got to check this box. Seriously. And and then actually, Nathaniel, here's the new one. You have to write a book now. That's the new box. That's the new box. So if your kid wants to write a book or if your kid wants to start a nonprofit for good reason or to express something important, then that's that's tremendous. And parents should support it. But anything that you're doing because of status anxiety or to climb is not gonna serve you in the long run, most likely. Couldn't agree more. Gary, you talked about trying to build a better civic learning ecosystem. What's your long-term goal for Civics Unplugged? What's the big vision? I finally given myself permission to even say it, say what it is. And it's to build the beloved community that MLK talked about. And by the beloved community, I mean, basically a global brotherhood, sisterhood, et cetera, like where, where it's like, it's fueled by unconditional love and a recognition that our destinies are, are so bound, right? In this fabric of, of mutuality. And I like the fact that it's, it's really aspirational and probably unachievable in many ways. That really helps at least focus my attention on not thinking short term and really having high standards about thinking about okay, what what type of leader is necessary? Who are the presidents, prime ministers, social entrepreneurs, artists, media moguls? What kind of character, uh, what kind of skill set do all these people need to share in common to actually be able to coordinate in a fashion that doesn't lead to a continued major societal downward spiral that we're facing right now, where it's kind of like everyone is like cutting each other down. And a metaphor that I like to to use is like people are kind of shuffling to get the best seat on the Titanic as it's sinking. Oh, God. Yeah. So. Well, I think there's quite a bit of wisdom in what you're saying and what you're developing as a team. I appreciate the time you've taken to Share it with me. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? Maybe like something along the lines of like, what gives me hope? (laughs) Gary, what gives you hope? (laughs) I think what gives me most hope is knowing that I can be extremely real with the kids that I've gotten to know really well over this past year who are not afraid to talk about the challenges that they face individually in their family, in their communities, you know, and all the pressures that they face, you know, in society to go down a certain beaten path and their insecurities and, but also how much they recognize all that needs to be done to build a better future and to build that beloved community. And a lot of them really, really want to commit more time and to take that road less traveled and a time will tell if you know how many of them actually commit to that road. The level of maturity and authenticity and just ability to grapple with extremely complex 
issues and what I like to call mutually exacerbating crises that we face today is really astonishing. And, and, and it completely blows my expectations that I had two years uh, ago out of the water. I did not have the potential that these kids have today. The thing that really motivates me is uh, knowing that Civics Unplugged can play hopefully a meaningful part in, in realizing that potential. I love the positivity and the idea of building a great community. There's also the negative example and the and sort of all the forces that are taking you the other direction. But I like the fact that one of the things that's happening with a lot of young people is that they're seeing bad examples at the top and going the other direction. They're learning the opposite of what some people are trying to teach them. Some people like our current president who are trying to teach selfishness and deceit and things like that. And young people are learning the opposite. Yep. And sometimes you can overcorrect, which is honestly what I, what I did for at least a year uh, between 2017 and 2018. But I see something analogous to what happened to me between 2018 to, to this day happening en masse this decade. So I guess we'll have to stay tuned and also contribute what we can. But Nathaniel, I think uh, your curiosity here uh, plays, you know, a huge part in, in, in driving this forward. Um, and I, this was really an inspiring conversation. It was for me too. That was Gary Shang in Civics Unplugged. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.